Welcome to Podcast Against Antisemitism, the show that takes a deep dive into the world's oldest hatred. I'm Ellie, your host, and you can join us for new episodes every Thursday. Subscribe now at antisemitism.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss a show. You can also watch the podcast on our YouTube channel and please consider leaving us a nice review so we can grow our listenership. It makes a big difference. My guest today is Rudy Rochman, a Jewish rights activist who rose to prominence after videos of his on-the-street debates went viral concerning issues of anti-Semitism and Jewish identity. In addition to creating engaging and educational video content, Rudy's work also sees him delivering speeches to students on campuses across America, and most recently, starring in and producing We Were Never Lost, a forthcoming documentary series about unknown Jewish communities worldwide. Rudy, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing? Thank you for having me, Baruch Hashem. Getting ready for Kippur and the holy city of Tzfat, so I can't be complaining. Yeah, that's great. Um, so, look, you first gained traction through your videos of your debates, often with fairly aggressive people whose anti-Semitism is quite blatant, and people that many Jews would consider hostile and beyond redemption. This was particularly clear in your debates with neo-Nazis. How did you start doing this sort of thing? And why do you uh, feel not only that a debate with these people is still worth having, but then uh, worth putting out there for other people to see? Um, so first of all, I would say that my work revolves around correcting the problems that I see. And I think with time, uh, people see different problems. So we all have to be open to the evolutions of those problems. Uh, for me, it's more so empowering the next generation of the Jewish people giving us the tools to be not only practicing Judaism, but Jews in practice, um, to be able to stand up for ourselves intellectually, ideologically, physically, in every sort of way. Uh, the second problem I see is anti-Semitism in the world from the right to the left to the every extreme uh, of every society. Uh, the third is a lack of vision mission statement that collects the Jewish people towards the next direction that we need to go towards. You know, we created the state of Israel, but now what? You know, we don't have that conversation. Uh, the fourth, I would say, it's the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. To correct that problems in our land, we can't do tikkun olam and ola until we do tikkun mabayt mabnedodim, meaning fixing our own home with our own cousins. And the fifth is the tribes of Israel that have been displaced and disconnected. And once we realize who they are, we actually realize that they're suffering as well, and we need to help them, and we have a responsibility for that. So all the work that I do focuses on fixing those problems. Now, of course, there's a huge amount of disinformation and misinformation about Israel and the Jewish people. And we have tools such as social media that can shift pop culture uh, by changing the way people see and understand things. So while I was a student at uh, Columbia University, I chosen to go to that university because the year I was transferring, it was listed as the number one most anti-Semitic school in North America. And I wanted to go to the place that was seen as the hardest so that no other Jew can make excuses as to why they couldn't stand up for themselves uh, in any space, but especially on college campuses. Uh, there I founded the Israel uh, movement on campus that wasn't left, right, one state, two states. Of course, I have my own opinions, but our goal was not to push a political agenda onto a democratic country or to make this about left and right. Our goal was to empower uh, the students, both Jews and non-Jews, to narrate our own story and to protect any movement that was trying to attack uh, our identity. And we started using social media to be effective and to 
empower not only those that were on the campus, but others that were not there. And with time, I've always been very engaging with every individual. I've realized that uh, those that are super anti-Semitic, whether on the right or on the left, wherever they stand, when they hate Jews, it's not necessarily because they know Jews, right? If someone were to stop you, Ali, on the street, a neo-Nazi, and begin insulting you as a Jew, they don't know who you are. So they don't have a problem with you personally. They have a problem with what they were told is Jews. And the reason that they have a problem is because they have trauma to begin with. And someone contextualized their trauma, telling them that the reason that trauma exists is because Jews are there. So I always think that it's important to engage with every situation. And rather than looking at this from a place of ego as you're attacking me, so I will attack you back. How can I spend my time to change the person's ideological view, uh, make my truth an extension of that person's truth? Uh, and be able to take the time to correct and to heal the situation. And maybe it's the first time that that person meets a Jew. Maybe it's the last time that the person meets a Jew. So there's always a balance of respect, but also there's a certain line that I don't let them cross where they have to respect as well. Um, and I will definitely expose the individual if they cross a certain line and don't um, you know, start spreading certain ideas. It doesn't mean we just accept what they say, but we do have to engage those ideas and to correct them. And even if they don't, Uh, change their opinion within that conversation but sometimes it does happen within one conversation you know sometimes you planted seeds that may grow with time Um, sometimes you know those that were around or those that see the video may be impacted far greater than the person you are engaging so there's always a benefit to engaging and spreading light where there's darkness and i would say while i was a student at columbia is where it first started online Mm. Have you ever found yourself debating with someone and then you think this person's a lost cause? Or do you believe everyone has has the possibility to have their opinion turned around? Well, the Jewish view is that anyone and everyone can do tshuva. So, of course, there's always an option. I've seen too many times uh, people have come from a place of complete negativity. And within a conversation or maybe a few weeks of conversations, things change. Um, It doesn't matter how far they are. So, absolutely. Um, I do think there's always a possibility for change. Does that mean that it will always happen? No. Does that mean that I won't stand up and uh, be harsh when we need to or be strong when we need to? No, we we need to know how to be strong as well and how to defend ourselves. But the person will always have the option to to make a tikkun or to uh, fix their position. And I will try to do my best to help them give them that opportunity. Mm. If in many of your videos, it's, it's quite clear that the person you're debating with gets very heated and they're very angry. How do you manage to stay calm and focused on the topic rather than getting riled and emotional? So I've always been calm, Baruch Hashem, in my nature. I've never felt this uh, feeling of losing my cool or feeling rage. And, you know, growing up when you would see kids, you know, lose their cool and maybe they have less control when they're, when they're older, even as an adult, it was always funny to me seeing someone not in control. It was strange to me. Like for me, it's just normal to always be in control. Like why would I not use the emotions that I feel as a tool to then guide the actions that I do in order to be most effective? Um, So that's just something that I would say is natural. But at the same time, when I look at the situation and I'm debating an individual, this is an opportunity. It's actually a beautiful opportunity. Again, like I said, it could be that person's first time in their life meeting a Jew or their last time in their life meeting a Jew. So that's actually an an incredible moment to help correct the situation. I take myself out even in the live situation and try to look as if I'm taking myself from above and looking down and telling myself, 
you know, what in 20 years from now, when I look back at this situation, what I wish that I had said or what I wish that I had done? Is it about really getting upset and making it about me and ego? Or is it about realizing that there's something in front of me that I can help correct? And so that mindset, that worldview, I think uh, helps me a lot when I engage with these conversations. Yeah. So, so when you're in a position, you're keeping your cool, but they might not be keeping theirs. Um, is there a security element to consider when debating with these people? Have you ever felt physically unsafe? Uh, there have been times in my life that I've felt physically unsafe, but I wouldn't say that during debates I feel unsafe um, because at the same time of giving respect and toning down the conversation and trying to speak from a from a very humanistic place. I'm not trying to prove that person wrong and be correct. I'm trying to show them on their terms that I've picked up by the conversation of where they're at, how they could be even more true on their own terms. And I think when you approach it in that way, in a very calm manner, it uh, calms the other person down. Uh, but at the same time, you know, some some of the, these people are looking to trample over Jews. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm holding a certain level of I'm not going to let you cross this line, which also prevents them from going too far. So it's, it's finding the balance between uh, demanding respect in the conversation with your confidence and with the way you communicate, but also not trying to trigger the other person and aggravate the other person into the contrary, trying to calm them down. Yeah. So now let's go to another aspect of what you do. You are currently in the process of creating the documentary series, We Were Never Lost. It's about unknown Jewish communities worldwide. What inspired this project and how is it going so far? For sure. So the project started actually also while I was a student at Columbia University. I was often going to the Chabad Rabbi Bloom, uh, the Jewish community there. And one day I was doing my work, it was next to campus, they had good Wi-Fi, and there's a woman who comes into the Chabad house to visit the Chabad rabbi. Apparently she had been part of the community in the past, and she brings this very unique looking kippah with the menorah and the Magan David, and something that was handmade, and I had never seen such a kippah, and she brings it as a gift to the Chabad rabbi. And I said, you know, excuse me, where did you get this beautiful kippah from? I want to know its story. And she said, oh, I just got back from... Uh, a honeymoon trip in Africa, and I met many uh, Jewish communities there. And she shows me pictures on her phone of these black Jews in Africa living across different places, putting tefillin, praying, you know, speaking Hebrew. And I'm looking at these images and I'm realizing how is it that I've never seen or heard about Jews in Africa besides expat Jews who are living there, Chabad's who are living there, tourists or the South African uh, Jewish community, or maybe even the Zimbabwean Jewish community that are mostly, I'd say, Ashkenazi Jews, I've never heard of these Jewish communities outside of the Ethiopian experience. And I'm realizing as I'm seeing these pictures that, you know, we've talked about it historically, that there were at least 10 tribes that were displaced from the land of Israel uh, during the split of the kingdoms, and eventually the kingdom of Israel being displaced. We know it uh, from a biblical Torah spiritual perspective that these communities displaced and that they will one day return. It says it very clearly in the Torah that in the times of Mashiach, the tribes of Israel reunite from the four corners of the earth. Uh, we also know from Torah, from our own culture and spirituality, that Yaakov blesses each one of his children, which become eventually the 12 tribes, with a different blessing. And the tribe of Judah gets the blessing that he will be the one that preserves the scepter, which means the control and the preservation of Torah, and that he will bring it back to the brothers when they will lose it. Now, it's not talking about the brothers in 
uh, Yehuda's life because those actual brothers never lose it. It's foreshadowing to the descendants of those brothers, which will be the tribes that will be quote unquote lost or disconnected from the rest of Am Yisrael, and that we, as those who descend from the civilization of Judea, although I come from Shevet Levi on both sides of my family, I came from the kingdom of Judea. That's why. I descend from half Ashkenazi and half Sephardi Jews, which came from that civilization, and that civilization has a responsibility to bring it back to the other tribes. So once we realized um, that this was something that we've been saying to ourselves for thousands of years, I mean, in the Amidah, which is a prayer that Jews do three times a day, we talk about Kibbutz Kaliot. So why have we never sought to apply that, especially today when we have the technology and means to travel and to communicate and to do research and to find things out? And so when I found out about the existence of these communities, what happened inside of me internally was one realizing, um, you know, hold on. Imagine if you had uh, a lost brother or sister that you never knew about your whole life and you turned 24, which I was at the time, and you realized that your whole entire life, you never even knew you had this sibling. So for me, the feeling that I had naturally to this sort of situation was, first of all, there was something stolen for me. Uh, there was a relationship with these family members that was taken from me, and I need to do what I need to do to reconnect and to catch up on lost time. And so we decided originally to go to Africa, starting uh, eventually to Asia and to South America and to other places where these communities exist, and to do some you know, social media videos, as we've been doing on these communities, to bring light. Eventually that evolved to a documentary, eventually that evolved to a documentary series, and we started about a year and two months ago on our journey to visit these communities, although the research and stuff happened much before. And we left to Nigeria a year and a month ago to start filming the first episode. Unfortunately, after two days there, uh, our team was taken to prison by the Nigerian government, who at the same time uh, is persecuting the Igbo community, which are the descendants of those Jews living in Nigeria. Not a surprise, Jews have been persecuted wherever they live and they get treated very similarly, uh, getting blamed for all the problems of society. Um, saying, oh, you guys only marry between yourselves because you think you're better. You guys are the ones that are the reason for the economic and social problems. You guys control the media, the same stereotypes and tropes that are used against Jews worldwide. Uh, but since Nigeria, since getting out of prison, we were there for three weeks under very harsh conditions, but oh, Hashem, we made it out. Um, since that moment, we've been to many other places in Africa, to Uganda, Tanzania, Zimbabwe, South Africa, Madagascar. Uh, in December and January, we're heading to our next country, which we cannot yet disclose because we could only disclose once we return for security reasons. And we're very much so in the production of this film to fulfill three goals. One, to reconnect all the tribes of Israel so that there's no more I didn't know um, and that we're all reconnected. Number two is to shift the way the world understands the Jewish people. Most of the world do not understand who we are, do not necessarily respect us, don't understand why we're a nation, civilization, connection to Israel, what are our practices. And through this film, we're also breaking those ideas down into a mainstream audience. We'll be able to understand our story through their individual story. Um, and the third is to reconnect all the Jews that are completely assimilated, disconnected, have no idea of what Judaism is, or have rejected Judaism because it was taught to them in a very restrictive and oppressive way. Um, and so they don't connect to any of it, but it's to reconnect those Jews as well to their culture, to show them the beauty of it. So we're very much so in the production. We've also started post-production, which is editing of the videos. And Bezat Hashem, it shall come out, uh, let's say, within a year. And when we're done with that, season two will be in Asia and season three will be in South America. So there's a lot more to do. Wow. Uh, 
this this honestly sounds like a uh, a fantastic uh series i'm really looking forward to seeing it um you mentioned uh nigeria which i was actually going to ask you about you you and your your crew were kidnapped and imprisoned for around three weeks and the story uh, went global it was a really big story can you tell us a bit more about what happened there and and your reactions to the whole thing yeah so we have to understand that nigeria is an invented country by the british the british basically took the three larger demographics uh separate nations i would even say although you had small identities amongst those peoples um and made them into one country the, and called it nigeria and so the problem with that is that you have the smaller demographic which are the Igbos that had the economic power and are also very educated and you have the larger demographic which is the Hausa Fulani mostly Muslim population who were larger in numbers but poorer and lesser educated and instead of creating a system that let's say were to unite or to divide but allow all to help each other um, they created a system where they made differences the Hausa Fulani had the political power and the Evos had the economic power and you also had the Aruba, which is another group. And the sort of way that the British would colonize is that they would divide and conquer. They did the same thing with Israelis and Palestinians. They did the same thing in India, Pakistan. They did the same thing uh, in Afghanistan and they did the same thing in Nigeria. And they turned one demographic against the other. Instead of fighting the British, they would fight each other. And we still see the remnants of that in many of these places. That's why India and Pakistan still have tension. That's why Israelis and Palestinians still have tension. That's why there's all sorts of problems in Afghanistan. And it's the same thing in Nigeria. Now, the government has been, unfortunately, uh, massacring the Igbos for generations. In uh, 1967, the same year that uh, Israel was able to liberate and free Jerusalem, the Igbos also fought to free uh, themselves from what they experience as an oppressive regime and three million Igbos were exterminated until this day people are being killed. So we knew coming into this that this was a dangerous situation um, and a lot of people while we were in prison they're like why would they go there um, you know why would they put themselves at risk but people need to understand that if I was born in America during the time of the Holocaust and I knew that my family members were being exterminated, there would be nothing keeping me away from going and fighting Nazis and saving Jews. And just as most people would understand that sentiment, maybe even if they themselves wouldn't go, it's the same thing over here. We have our brothers and sisters that are being killed. Nobody knows about them. And I, with a, with a platform, uh, have a responsibility. The platform that I have is not who I am. The platform that I have is a tool I have access to in order to be who I am and to bring light to these issues. And so we went to Nigeria. We were very careful. There were certain places that we knew we couldn't go. We never posted our exact location. We had security with us. But unfortunately, the government found out where we were. Uh, we were not expecting to be kidnapped by the government. Uh, and they came with 15 armed gunmen to our hotel room, uh, took us by force in vans and took us to this government facility for a day. And then from there, we're transferred about a 12-hour drive to a prison where we stayed for the next uh, three weeks. And during that time, the first week, they did not give us food, only water, and they kept us in a cage, sleeping on the floor in very disgusting conditions. And the following two weeks, the last two weeks after the first one, we were transferred to another cage uh, with two Boko Haram terrorists as our cellmates. And Boko Haram is a wing of ISIS in Nigeria. So it was a very hard time for us. Um, especially, you know, not knowing when you'd get out. We didn't know if it would last days, weeks, months, years. Uh, we had no sense of anything, no communication, completely disconnected from all. 
um, after the first week, we only were given one meal a day, and they finally allowed Chabad to bring us those meals, so we were able to keep kosher. And it was very, very difficult to be there. However, uh, we stayed strong. We never let them break us. We never lost hope. We never gave up faith. We always had full imuna that we would get out there and that there was a reason for everything. And eventually we did. And when we look back at that moment, uh, we feel very proud of that moment because it was a very difficult chapter of our lives for those who were there with me, which were Noam and David, the other members of the team. And we made it out there together and strong and never losing hope. And to be honest, there were miracles that happened to us all throughout uh, that experience. The reason why we got out eventually is because um, I would say mostly credit to my parents, which locked themselves up in a, in a room and created a sort of war room with pictures and strings connected to this person and that person, and eventually got enough people involved that the government of the US and France, which uh, I have citizenships to, put political pressure onto Nigeria. And eventually that led to us getting released. And I would say the uh, Israeli um, consulate there um, was a big help as well for us on the ground to try to bring us the food from Chabad and to bring us some new clothes and to try to fight for us to finally have access to showers. So there were a lot of people who, who did a lot for us. And of course, so many people prayed and said Tehillim and United. And we only knew what people were saying when we got out. We had no idea if people even knew that we were there, what people did. Um, so it was a very difficult time, but Bo Hashem made Hey, if you want to stay up to date with the fight against anti-Semitism, why not subscribe to Campaign Against Anti-Semitism? Visit antisemitism.org slash act or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or YouTube. I, I, I have to ask now, how, you know, since, since you guys left, do you know how the, uh, the Evo community are currently doing? So the Evos are a rather large community. Um, we have to understand that if we are 15 million Jews of those who descend from basically the tribe of Judah, some of Binyamin, Levites were spread across everywhere, and maybe some Shimon early child educators, the majority of the nation of Israel was displaced. So if we're 15 million, imagine how many more there are if you multiply that by, by five. Um, and then you subtract maybe exterminations like the Shoah and Inquisition in other places, and you multiply the amount of Jews that would have existed, um, there's a lot. Now, in Nigeria, the Igbos are around 50 million, five zero million. And it sounds like a huge number when you first hear it, and it is. Uh, unfortunately, the majority of the Igbos were uh, forcibly converted to Christianity. Interestingly enough, they still identify as Israelites. But the community that we went to visit were the community that still practice Judaism, have not converted to Christianity, or the few that have left Christianity and come back. Um, to their own brothers and sisters that have always maintained their identity and never practiced. Uh, there were times where they went underground, um, and there's still persecutions happening. Some months there are about 500 Evos being killed. Um, you know, the, the government is not the kindest to the Evo people, and we hope that things will change uh, down the line, but they are still very much so in danger, which shows how pressing it is for us as Jews who do have the power, who do have a homeland, who do have a country to help them. I mean, imagine if they had come home first and we were still living in suffering in diaspora in Europe and in North Africa and in the Middle East. Wouldn't we expect them to come for us, to recognize us uh, and to help us? Uh, and the fact that we don't know about them and that they're still suffering. And the most, most of the times that I express these stories to many Jews, the immediate reaction is not, wow, 
these tribes that we've been talking about for thousands of years that says in the Torah that need to come, that we pray three times a day about, and that we know clearly exists scientifically, historically, archaeologically, and in every single way, let's go and find them. The, the response I usually get from them is, well, how do you know that they're Jewish? Has their mother always been, it's always like the negative response of questioning, which yes, we should question. It doesn't mean you just accept someone when they say that they're Jewish. Of course, you need to figure it out. You need to create a process. You need to reintegrate them. But the, the response is always a negative, like, well, I don't really think that's true. You'll have to prove it to me. I don't have time for this. Rather than, wow, this may be real. Let's go and prove it if it is. Um, and it's very unfortunate that we have that kind of uh, reaction. But Zat Hashem, with the documentary we'll create, uh, we're not looking only to bring up the information, but to touch the hearts of those who will watch it and to reconnect us all. And I've realized over time that uh, the term lost tribe is actually very offensive to many of these quote-unquote lost tribes or rather disconnected communities of Jews. And I remember one of my first Zoom calls that I had with the Evo leaders, uh, which there's not only Evos that are these tribes in Africa, there's in Tanzania and Zimbabwe and South Africa and Madagascar, still in Ethiopia. And when I was on a Zoom call, I said uh, very emotionally, I can't wait for the lost tribes to be reconnected with the nation of Israel. And the leader of the community said, listen, Rudy, we love your project, we support you. But we have to be honest with you that the term lost tribe to us is actually very offensive. And I didn't understand. I said, why? That's what we've always had this term coined. And that's what we've always called it. He said, yeah, well, maybe to you, we were lost. But to us, we were never lost. And that's when I realized that the lost element is the connection that we've had, not them being lost. They've always known where they were. And of course, when we look at it, it's like, imagine from the other perspective, they probably thought we were lost as well. It just so happens that we came home first. So that's when we decided to name the documentary, We Were Never Lost, to show that these are disconnected communities of Amisal, and it's our responsibility in our generation to reconnect them. Yeah, I, I really think this sort of ties into how you view uh, Judaism as a whole, because you've previously said that you don't really view Judaism as just a religion, you view it more as, as a portable civilization, which Jews can sort of pack up and carry around with us. And I thought that was very interesting. Can you elaborate more on what that means? Sure. I mean, I would even go further to say it's not just not just a religion. It's not a religion at all. And it's not because the way the Jewish people define the word religion. When we when we say Judaism is our religion, what we mean by that is this is our spirituality, Torah, culture, history, holidays, connection to our land. You know, this is our nation. That, that's what we mean when you say Judaism is our religion. But the word religion is defined very differently by the rest of the world. They define it as a belief system and a God, deity, book, or prophet. So if you do not believe in the God, deity, book, or prophet, you're not a part of a religion. And you're only a part of a religion if you, in the moment, choose to identify with it. So to give examples, if you look at Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, which are religions, if an individual decides from one moment to the next to believe in Jesus or in uh, the Muhammad and the Quran or in Buddhism and its philosophies, they automatically become parts of those religions. And the moment that they decide to no longer believe in those things, they're now no longer part of that religion. And if we apply that same standard of you must believe, and if you don't, you're not a part of it, and you can be a part of it right away just by believing in it, that standard of what religions are, those rules don't apply to the Jewish people. Because even if you don't believe in Hashem and the Torah, you're still a Jew. So already it's not a religion. And to become a Jew, you don't just accept Torah. You have to go through years of a process of really integrating yourself 
uh, into the Jewish people and becoming one with the civilization. So it's it's not a religion at all by the definition of what the word religion means and by the way the world understands religion. Unfortunately, a lot of Jews can't detach from this word because they've been so attached to it, but they need to understand it's not a Jewish word and we need to understand how they define it, not how we've misdefined it. Um, so I think that we, if we look at also other native civilizations like the Mayans, the Aztecs, uh, Aboriginals, Maoris, Polynesians, they also have spirituality. You know, being a civilization doesn't mean you're disconnected from spirituality. So not being a religion doesn't mean we don't have to watch them in spirituality. It just means that we're not just this wandering ideology that crosses over borders. We're physical people that were forced out of that. And in order to preserve our identity, we created a portable version of that called Judaism, which within this suitcase, we packed in our culture, spirituality, Torah, language, history, everything else to preserve it, to pass it down and to one day bring it back. And so that's why I don't think that Judaism is a religion. Again, it's not by how Jews, in my opinion, misdefine it. It's by how the world defines it and to decolonize a deeper understanding of who we really are and what we're supposed to do. Mm. So, so in this school of thought, I'm wondering to what extent has anti-Semitism played a factor in Judaism becoming a portable civilization due to Jews being persecuted and having to flee from so many countries? Well, I would say that the fact that the that a civilization destroyed our civilization because they had a problem with us, which let's say the last ones were the Romans, um, that was an act of being against the Jewish people. I would assume if you were to destroy any other civilization, that would be anti those civilizations as well. Um, and because we were displaced and we quite really went to all four corners of the earth, there were different tactics used to preserve that identity. And that's what I think the creation of Judaism is. In fact, it doesn't talk about Judaism in the Torah. There's no mention of even Jews or either Amisrael, Bnei Israel, or Ivrim. So Judaism comes from Judea, which was the last name of the civilization. And an ism is a sort of human-made structure, right? Whether you have Zionism, feminism, capitalism, communism, whatever ism is, whether good or bad or, or both, uh, it's a social human-made structure. So Judaism was the structure that we created to preserve our identity and to pass it down. And of course, due to persecution, some people assimilated, some people were killed, some people preserved it more. Um, but the the core of anti-Semitism is, is very interesting. And I feel like it's something we may want to break down as well. Because it's fascinating how if you look at every extreme of every group, right? The far right, the far left, the far religious, the far secular, uh, white supremacists, black supremacists, you take any extreme of any demographic throughout time, throughout borders, and they usually get to the conclusion that the problem is the Jew. Now, it's fascinating because usually those who experience racism from those who are black are usually from those who are white. Those who usually experience uh, xenophobia from a community is usually the opposite community. But the Jewish community experiences it from all communities and their extremes. Um, and so it's interesting. We ask ourselves, why do all these societies that are extreme get to the conclusion? The one thing they all agree on is that the Jew is the problem. How could that be? Is it really because we are the cause of all these problems? Like they say, those who are Jews would know to say that it's not the case because we're not creating all these problems in the world. So maybe it's because of something that we're not doing, not because of something that we're doing. And if you look back at it and you go into understanding what is the purpose of the Jewish people? And you find out that our purpose is to do two things, to do tikkun olam and olagoyim, to heal the world and to empower the other uh, nations to be able to fulfill their own potential uh, in creation because we're all a part of one creation. So if that is our mission statement, let's say the world is a body 
and every nation has its own function, system, purpose, organ. Uh, it's not binary. One nation can serve the roles of two uh, functions and five nations can serve the role of one. It can be a very mix of different things and every nation chooses what function it is. We chose to be tikkun olam and olaguim, to fix the world, to heal the world, to fix its problems and to empower other nations. It's not proprietary. Other nations can choose that too. But in the meantime, we chose that. So what within the human body heals the body, tikkun olam, and allows the other organs to function, to be all to the other organs, to be all aguim. And I was thinking about this question for a while, and I realized, okay, it's not the heart of the brain. They both allow the body to function, but they don't heal the body. It's the immune system. The immune system's responsibility is to heal the body from its problems and to allow the other body parts to work. So when the immune system does not work, what happens? The body becomes sick. And I think what we're seeing is we're living in a very sick world, not one that we've created, but one that subconsciously other civilizations, especially the extremes of those civilizations, recognize that we had a responsibility that we chose to prevent. And because we are not fulfilling that purpose, they're experiencing those problems as us being the cause of them. That's what I think is happening on a very metaphysical level, um, because you cannot explain why anti-Semitism constantly exists, is constantly growing across borders, across time, throughout all of these different extremes. And you go to New York City, 13% of the population is Jewish, and over 56% of the total hate crimes are against Jews. That does not make sense logically. You cannot apply a logical answer to that. So you have to understand things on a much deeper level. And that's the conclusion that I've come to. I don't think it's only my conclusion. I think it's a very Kabbalistic Torah-based conclusion. And so that kind of puts the, not blame on us, but responsibility on us to be able to understand the equation and to shift that equation. So we clearly see from Jewish history Let's put aside scripture and Torah and spirituality. Let's speak from a very scientific, logical place. Anyone that views Jewish history clearly sees that when Jews are disempowered, uh, disunited, fighting each other, assimilating, forgetting who they are, going against their purpose, that right in those moments in history, we experience the worst of traumas and tragedies. And we see the contrary. When Jews unite, even in those moments, when Jews empower themselves, when they're fulfilling their purpose, when they're going away from assimilation and reconnecting to their identity, we overcome the greatest of struggles and civilizations uh, that have existed and miracles happen. So it's very clear that there is a formula when we unite, when we empower ourselves, when we fulfill our purpose and we go towards who we are and not towards against who we are, then we will be protected and we'll be able to overcome the challenges we have. And we need to start applying the formulas that we, that we have for us. Yeah, I, I, I think that's certainly true. And um, you, you previously said that in order for anti-Semitism to be tackled, Jews must stand tall and proud, which I think many people, including myself, would certainly agree with. Um, however, uh, some people took issue with one of your videos in which uh, they felt that you implied that Jews were somehow responsible for what happened to them during the Holocaust. And I think this came down to misunderstanding, as I believe the essence of your video was to establish that anti-Semitism is, is rooted in Jewish pride. Despite this, some people were understandably quite upset and you did then release a follow-up video clarifying your comments. Were you surprised by the response? And in hindsight, would you have worded it differently? Uh, in hindsight, I would have, because I feel like I ripped off the Band-Aid rather than maybe putting some oil around it to make it a lot easier. Uh, the Band-Aid did need to be removed because we need surgery on this wound that cannot be healed with a Band-Aid. Uh, so my intentions of removing it, I still believe we need to talk about these issues. But of course, clearly there was a 50-50 reaction. 
50% of the Jews that saw it very much so identified with it and supported it, and 50% took it the wrong way. Now, I do think there were also a lot of players that uh, took my words and put words into my mouth, and then people were kind of seeing what they said rather than what I said. Um, however, again, I think when I have such a platform, I have also a responsibility to say things in a way that they do not get misinterpreted. Um, I think a lot of people have a problem with viewing the Holocaust in a way that is the Jewish way. Let's look at all of our holidays. The Hebrew perspective on looking at our past is seeing ourselves as the past, right? When we when we go when we do Pesach, right? We talk about us being slaves. Avadim Hainu, we were slaves, not our ancestors. Them too, but we are an extension of those ancestors and a continuation. And we also look at the Torah, which criticizes and clearly says when we were wrong. We have Yom Kippur coming up that talks about. This is where we're wrong. We have to understand the responsibilities and admit guilt when we did and be able to correct that and learn from when we were wrong and, and realize how we were right and how we were able to overcome. And so unfortunately with the Holocaust, we have turned it into a memorial. We light a candle, we watch a movie, we make a post, we speak to a survivor, we listen to a survivor, which unfortunately are dying out, but we don't actually look into what happened before the Holocaust, before the Nazis took power and let's say it was too late to actually do something about it, you know, anti-Semitism had a whole evolution of rising to get to the point where at some point it was, let's say, too late, which in my opinion, there's no such thing as too late. Um, and as anti-Semitism was rising, what were Jewish leaders at the time saying? Most Jewish leaders were making excuses and saying, no, don't fight back. If you do something, it'll just get worse. And you had many even leaders saying, no, we have to, you know, side with them. Because anyways, they're going to take power, so might as well support them so that we at least have a relationship with them. We were completely divided, completely assimilating. So, of course, a bully got up and eventually got power and eventually was beating us because we've been living with a victim mentality that we think the only way to survive is under the thumb of another oppressive power. And let's suck up to them in order for them to approve of us and to, and to protect us and not kill us. So, you know, if we could have created the state of Israel after the Holocaust with six million Jews dead, with everything and all the resources and all the money and power that we would have had before the Holocaust, we could have done it before. And so the point that I was saying is that we could have done something before. Of course, in hindsight, we're all geniuses in better ways because we have the whole context. So I'm not here to judge, but I'm here to recognize that, you know, the term never again, which means we make sure it never happens again. We take the responsibility. And if it does, it means we failed. It didn't start after the Holocaust. It started much before. We should have never let it happen. We should have acted together. We should have united, which we were divided. We were assimilating. We were not fighting back. And the very few that were fighting back, which I get my name Rudy from, from a partisan fighter during the Holocaust, uh, before the Holocaust were happen was happening, were being shamed. Right, the individual Rudy that I get my name from recognized anti-Semitism growing, and people were blaming him, saying, "No, it's because of you that eventually, if they kill us, it'll be because of you, because you just won't assimilate, you just won't just put your head down, you just won't accept, you know, the reality that we're living in, and you're making it harder for us." So I felt a lot of that as well when I got attacked from people. Um, if you read any uh, book about the Holocaust of survivors or community letters or letters that leaders are writing to themselves or even Nazis that talk about you know, how they were seeing Jews, most Jews stood down. Most Jews did not fight back. You had some, but far too little and far too late. And so again, it's part of this equation that when Jews are divided, when we're disempowered, when we're not standing up for ourselves and we're assimilating, we experience traumas. And so I'm not here to blame the Jewish people for what happened. It's not our fault. It's not us who did it. It's the Nazis who did it. But it's our responsibility to prevent it. And we failed that responsibility. 
And we need to learn from that. That's the whole point of never again, not to fail that responsibility again. And so that's my message. The reason why I think a lot of people um, reacted is because we, we hold on to a deep amount, a large amount of, uh, of genetic trauma uh, from that moment. I think the 6 million Nishamot that uh, were massacred in the Holocaust, the majority of my family on my father's side as well, are still here. Right in Judaism, we believe in Gilgul Neshamot and Neshamot coming back. So there's a lot of trauma that we haven't yet really uh, processed and healed. And we've been lighting candles and watching videos rather than understanding what really happened, what do we learn from this, and how could we apply uh, those teachings and understandings in order to apply them today. Not just saying never again, but really putting that into practice. Hmm. Hmm. You mentioned before Jews today and how there still needs to be work done today. And a big theme of your activism revolves around the importance of Jewish pride, not being afraid to be who you are. Um, and, and that in itself can be a means of tackling anti-Semitism. How can Jews today uh, use Jewish pride to tackle anti-Semitism? For sure. So again, I do think it's important for Jews to stand up um, and to fight against anti-Semitism. But the real solution to fighting anti-Semitism is to remove that need of a reaction within other societies for our rejection because we're not fulfilling our purpose. And so I think if we use the state of Israel as a vehicle, or let's say the land of Israel, to do tikkun olam and there wouldn't be this rejection. That being said, if we look at other movements that were able to stand up, let's go back 60, 70 years ago in America, there were no civil rights. So how did it go from point A to point B? Not ending racism, there still are issues, but for getting a society to this point of today, you know, me and you both grew up in a reality where it would sound crazy that people of color would not have equal rights, right? We were, we were taught that this existed, but for this to even exist conceptually, when we think about it, it's crazy. Like why would someone not give another person rights because of their skin color, let alone enslave them because of their genetic pigmentations they have in their skin? To let's say millennials and Gen Z, that concept sounds crazy, but it was not too long ago. So how did it shift? Uh, how did the whole society look at the situation differently? It's not by the positions of power. Black people didn't have politicians and big businessmen and, and corporate power to be able to shift society. It's from the bottom up. They were able to change the mentality of the younger generation, getting them to understand that xenophobia against black people, racism was something wrong, that we were all human beings, and that society needed to shift and do things better, which there's still much more work to do. But they were able to do that from the ground up and rather quickly, 67 years ago, all of a sudden we see a totally different reality. So if we want to change the reality for the Jewish people and get people to respect us, to understand us, and to recognize that anti-Semitism is wrong, just as most of society has recognized that other forms of xenophobia is wrong, we have to stand up and to shift that culture. Now, when we look at uh, most college campuses, when Jews go into campus, they don't know how to debate. They don't know how to do public speaking. They're not conditioned uh, of understanding the different narratives that exist against the Jewish people from all sorts of directions. Um, they're not empowered. They don't have the courage. So we sort of talk amongst ourselves. We put our heads down. We get the good jobs. We get good money and we donate money back to the top. And that doesn't work. The top-down approach is very short-term, it's not long-term. So we need to apply a more, more long-term approach, which is from the bottom up. Uh, but we need to realize that every Jew has the responsibility to stand up for the collective, and every Jew has their own way of doing so. Um, and we need to start educating a, a much uh, stronger youth in order for them to go and change the reality that we currently experience.
Mm. Now, we've spoken a lot about what Jews to, uh, can do to tackle anti-Semitism. I want to ask you if someone who is not Jewish comes to you and says, I want to help in the fight against anti-Semitism, and they may not know loads about Judaism, and they may not even know loads about anti-Semitism, what would you say they should do? Where should they start? First of all, amazing. Um, I don't think that when you look at any liberation movement, we just spoke about the civil rights movement, it wasn't only black people fighting for black rights. Uh, definitely black people led their own movements, the so Jews should lead in their own movements. Um, but you also had many allies. So we do need to create space for allies within um, Jewish self-determination and fighting anti-Semitism. And I wouldn't say there's necessarily one answer. I would definitely say to non-Jews that it's not your job to narrate our story or to guide us. It's your job to help us. Uh, so definitely don't speak over Jews. And you should be helping Jews in whatever way that you can. So it depends on your situation. If you're a student on campus, if you're an adult, if you're in a w different work environment in a different country, there may be different issues to tackle on. And different people have different skills. Your abilities may be more so to do public speaking or to do um, video work or to uh, you know, be a writer or to create something. There's different ways of interacting. You have different communities. It might be to your small circle, but might be a much larger circle. And that responsibility may even change over time. What worked while you were a student on campus might not be the same thing when you're a parent of four children and living in a different country with a different job and a different mentality of the way society has evolved. So you must also be open to its evolution. There's not a one answer fits all. It's more so I think every individual has to ask themselves, what are my skills? What are my talents? What are the problems that I see? Those skills may change. Those problems that you see may change. How do you apply those skills to fix those problems? I think that is the question people need to ask themselves to find their own answer. Mm, definitely. Um, now, look, as, as we come to the end of this, I first of all want to want to thank you again for coming on the podcast. I also want to thank Ellie Goldsmith from Unity Bookings for making this happen. A uh, very helpful guy. He can be reached at uh, unityinspiresprojects at gmail.com or on Instagram at unityinspiresprojects. So thank you, Ellie Goldsmith. Um, please tell the listeners, um, Rudy, what have you got coming up and where can people find you? First of all, Ellie's a great guy. So I thank him also for, for setting this up. And you're also a great guy. Great to meet you. Um, so the way people can find our work uh, is mostly on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok. You can just uh, type in my name, Rudy Rockman or Rudy Israel. Uh, the documentary we have out, Zat Hashem, will be coming out on a very large streaming platform. We're still in the process of that. And I'm sure people will hear about it when it's there. If you want to find out more information or to help our project or learn more, you can also check out weWereNeverLost.com. Uh, there's ways to support and to donate and also to learn more and information about those communities. And we do see the evolution of this project uh, of creating abilities for Jews all around the world to reconnect and to go and visit these communities or to send them aid and to help them. Um, so there's many things coming up. And again, a lot of people see my work as what I do is online. Um, yes, I do a lot of work online, but it's more so what I do on the ground that I post online. So I see myself more as an activist on the ground. And what people see online is more so the video taken about the work done uh, there. So I recommend everyone, um, if you'd like to look up more information, more videos, to check out those uh, social media resources. But what I want people to really take away from those videos is not, oh, Rudy has us covered. He's doing a great job. It's fine. I do those videos to inspire people to realize that they themselves can make an impact, that we all have an ability to create light where there's darkness and to give people a sort of secondhand experience of 
what to say in those moments. What are the arguments that work? What are the arguments that don't work? How do you have the confidence to handle a situation where someone is coming at you in a very angry way, uh, in an aggressive way? How do you stay calm? So those videos are tools for you to use in order to apply to your life to be a better version of yourself, both individually and collectively. So I hope people uh, know that, understand that, and can take from that. But of course, there's many other resources as well, other individuals doing great work, um, and there's many people to check out. We're all a part of one. Oh, definitely, definitely. Rudy Rockman, thank you so much for coming on Podcast Against Antisemitism. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Podcast Against Antisemitism. If you did, please subscribe and leave us a nice rating or email any feedback to podcast.antisemitism.org. Until next Thursday, stay safe.